We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the Lunchtime Campus Bible Study, where it was delivered for university students. Now the context of Romans 13 is still, I think, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That is, because of the mercies of God that have been shown to us, we are to present ourselves to God, not like the world, but transformed. And how can we be transformed but by the renewing of our minds? So that we can, it's a very funny phrase, isn't it? Test and approve what God's will is. It's not that we stand in judgment on God's will. It's rather so that we will actually know what God's will is, that we'll be able to find out and evaluate what God's will is in the sense of trying to approve it, in the sense of trying to say, yes, that is what is right. That is, God's will is good and perfect, irrespective of whether we like it or not. It is pleasing. It is the right thing. But in our human sinfulness, we by nature reject it, distort it, and ridicule it. When you're an unbeliever and you hear of the, new, the will of God, you say, oh, that can't be the right way to live. That's a silly way to live. That's an old-fashioned way. Dull, boring. All kinds of ways in which you'll put down God's will. But when you've experienced the mercies of God, then you will look to have your mind transformed by that experience of the mercies of God so that you will start to see that the will of God is in fact wise, is in fact loving, is in fact right. So you'll become eager to follow it. By the renewed mind, you come to approve the will of God. And as you come to approve the will of God by this renewed mind, you will be transformed so that you are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. For conformity to the ways of this world, the pressure to go with the flow, is enormous. And to stand out against it really does require being different. And the place at which you need to be different is in your whole evaluation of life of your mind, of your understanding, of your values, of your worldview, of your relationship to God. But what is the way of the world? Well, we could spend the rest of the week, the rest of the month, the rest of the year just talking about the ways of the world, couldn't we? I mean, the way of the world is full of, of all kinds of different things. But here, we have in mind some things which are reflected in chapter 13 in terms of relationships with the government and authority, in terms of indebtedness to other people and in terms of awareness of where the world is up to in time and how close the day is. See, at heart, the way of the world is self-centred rather than God-centred. I mean, sometimes people have values, but the values nearly are always self in the end. That is, they might say, well, I'm, I'm doing it all for my children. I'm not doing it for myself, I'm doing it for my children. But the key word in that phrase is a little one that I just gabbled. M I'm doing it all for my children. I'm not doing it for your children. I'm doing it for my children. You say, well, I'm doing it for my community. It's not my children. It's, it's, it's my whole community. It's still my community. I mean, in the end, people want to say, I'm doing it for the whole wide world, but nobody actually knows how to do it for the whole wide world. In fact, they're hard-pressed to do it for their own family. It's my security. It's my fulfillment. It's my expression. It's my, me, self at the centre. And therefore, tends to be anti-authoritarian, tends to be indebted to others because it's always pushing your own barrow and tends to ignore the time that we are living in. 
Well, let's look at the authority subject first. Those, of course, who are in authority are always keen to argue for it, just as those who are not in authority are keen to argue against it. But Paul was not in authority. Paul, if we know his life from the book of Acts, don't we, was always being bashed up by people in authority, being thrown in prison by people in authority. He's not someone in authority. He's someone who is following the crucified one. He's following one who has been himself executed by those in authority. And yet Paul is not arguing against authority. He's not arguing for rebellion and revolution. He is arguing for submission to authority. The word itself, authority, arouses in us, if we're at all thoughtful or rebellious, negative connotations, doesn't it? It's a big problem. In fact, we get very hard to distinguish between authority and authoritarianism. We think negatively about it. Yet, of course, the first century Roman world that Paul was writing of was infinitely more authoritarian than the world we live in here in Australia. Uh, not necessarily less authoritarian than the world of people live in, say, in China or other parts of the world, but certainly compared to Australia, we don't know what authority means compared to first century Rome. Paul is writing in a context of real authoritarianism, and yet he is writing about authority and calling upon us to submit. Submission is the Christian attitude, not just to government, but to life and to other people. What does it mean? Is submission the same as obedience? The answer is yes and no. It's not identical to obedience, but it often includes obedience. Submission is much more general a phrase of relationship rather than just an obedience to rules and regulations or to commands and directives. Submission is an accepting of the authority of the other person, the power of the other person, the place of the other person over you, that somehow they have rights over you that you are going to acknowledge. It's not uh, an equal relationship. You can't submit to each other in the sense that the relationship is completely the same. It really is placing yourself under the authority of another person and therefore often will involve obeying what that other person directs you to do, but not always. That's not the only way in which relationship can be established. It's not always that they give orders and it's not always that you have to obey everything that they tell you to do. Notice it has nothing to do with superiority. Our community is very confused at this point because we're so committed egalitarian that we think that if you submit to somebody else, you're saying they're better than you. But it needn't say anything about being better than you. But it has got a lot to do with trust. It's got a lot to do with humility, that you put yourself under the authority of anybody else. And it does create a stable, peaceable and workable society when people do it. Whereas self-centeredness, rebellion, revolution, creates in its wake an unstable and warring community. Now, again, you see, for us who have lived in a land that has been dominated by peace, except if you're an Aborigine for 200 years, it's no big deal. We think, well, peace, so what? Stability, so what? But as we talk to our friends who lived in places as far afield as China and Argentina or Bulgaria or Latvia, to live in a country of trust, and stability of peace and harmony is miraculous. 
It's astonishing that people can get on with each other. What is it that can create it? The basis of this establishment, which makes it really Christian, and it's why Christians can do it and non-Christians by and large won't do it, the basis of it is the knowledge of the establishment of the authority. That is, all authority is derived from God. God is the sovereign Lord over all things. And he is at work in all things, if you remember chapter 8, for our good. So that God is the ruler of rulers, the judge of judges, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Whatever authority you care to set up, he's the emperor of emperors. Whatever authority you care to put up, God is the one from whom all authority is derived. Verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. And the authorities that exist have been established by God. And therefore, verse 2, whoever is rebelling against authority is rebelling against God, who actually has authorised authority, who has established authority. For to rebel against authority is to, is to lack confidence in God's provision for our good. God, for our good, has established government in this world. It is for our good. Even in a world of judgment, a fallen world like our world, God has seen what is best for us and has established such authority which is best for us. Now, in saying it is for our good, in saying it is best for us, remember from Romans 8 that we're not saying it is always going to lead to us to happiness. It's not always happiness. Our good may involve persecution, it may involve suffering. It may involve all kinds of dreadful things, but it is ultimately for our salvation's sake and our growth in godliness' sake. God is at work in everything for good, and everything doesn't exclude governments, it includes governments, even pagan governments, as pagan as the Roman government. God is at work in that for our good. It's why only Christians can see it and accept it, because when the non-Christian mind sees government, it sees nothing greater than the government. It sees no power greater than the power of the army. And so it immediately has to revolt against that power or knuckle under it with no chance of survival. But Christians know that every power has a power beyond it, a power above it, a power that is God, who is just using the government to bring about his purposes. It's, uh, China is a classic in it. Oh, I've got no love of the Chinese government. I've got every reason like you have to dislike most of what they've done since 1948. But in 1948, when the government, uh, the corrupt Western government fell to the corrupt communist government, when that great change took place, one of the most effective parts of the change was that missionaries were chased out of China. By about 1951, there were no missionaries left. And the hundred years of evangelism from the Western world of the Chinese nation came to an abrupt end. It's been a matter of great prayer for Christians ever since 1948. But when the bamboo curtain opened ever so slightly and we could see inside for a few moments, long after the Cultural Revolution and the rest, what did we discover but that there were more Christians evangelised and converted in the 20 or 30 years since the Communists took over than there were in the hundred years when the Western colonial powers were in control. God has been working his purpose out. And colonialism, with all its corrupting influences, was now standing in the way of the gospel preaching in China. It was now an obstacle to the acceptance of the gospel of, uh, of Jesus Christ, rather than being a help. 
God works his purposes out his way. It doesn't look good, it looks dreadful at times. But do you think Mao Zedong's arrival for God? Why, not even Mao Zedong believes that anymore. No, my friends, God is the king of kings, the president of presidents, the ruler of rulers, and we need to have confidence and trust in him. Well, does that mean we would ever march against a government? Well, yes, we might march against a government. It would seem to me that might be an appropriate thing to do. But if we did it, we'd have to do it peacefully in submission. You see, it's not the same as obedience. It's got to do with submission. And you've got, got to accept their judgments and their rule and their power. That is, there's not much challenge here for us to be revolutionaries. Even in ungodly countries, even with a Stalin or a Hitler or whoever, there's no great courage, encouragement to us to be revolutionaries. As if somehow by changing government you're going to solve the problems of the country. That's just not true, is it? Italy's changed the government 50 times in about 30 years. Just as well they've got a good public service. And in South American countries, you just keep changing the country, change the government, change the government. It doesn't actually change the people, doesn't change the circumstances. That's not the way. We're not called to that kind of action. We do not bring the gospel of Jesus Christ in by political revolution or by militaristic effort. We can never bring the gospel of Jesus Christ in that way. That's not what we're called to do and we don't need to do that because God is in control of the governments that he set up, even the evil governments. It's all in God's hands. But does that mean we do everything the government ever tells us? No, he's not saying that. For there is a time when you've got to obey God rather than man. But we must do it submitting to them, knowing that they have the authority to throw us in jail, if that's be the case, and rejoicing that we have the opportunity to evangelise fellow prisoners. For God will use whatever the situation for our good. What if I'm called to fight? Well, there's nothing in the scriptures against fighting. If that's what the government is calling me to do, but if it calls me to fight in a way that offends my conscience, then I must be willing to stand with the people whom I'm supposed to shoot and be shot with them. I must accept that the government has the right to do as it will, and it will do it. That's all it's calling me upon to do. It's not right for me to remove myself from the authority that God has established over me. I may have to refuse them, but I must seek to do so honourably and peaceably. I mustn't do it in such a way that I'm going to destroy the whole fabric of the society. That's not, I'm not called upon to do that. I'm not to take the government of the world in my hands as if I know how to run the world. No one knows how to run the world. Quite evident from the number of politicians we've seen who have tried it. Now it's got nothing to do with superiority. It's all got to do with God's establishment. You see, when I meet up with a policeman in the street who gives me directions, I don't think that he's a better man than I am. I don't think he's smarter, I don't think he's cleverer, I don't think he's faster, he's stronger. I don't even think about the gun that's strapped onto his, hol in his holster. There's nothing about, it's got to do with his authority. And why? In some other context, some other place, I might be a parking attendant and he might be a motorist. And at that point he'll have to be under my authority. To place yourself under somebody's authority has got nothing to do with accepting an idea of better or worse. It's got to do with accepting God's appointment in this world. Uh, so many of our debates about relationships with parents and elders and especially relationships with husbands have been dogged with this idea that authority 
always means authoritarianism and always means superiority. It's got nothing to do with those issues. It's got to do with God creating and establishing societies in the ways that fulfils his purposes. What is his purpose for government? Verse 3 and 4, justice. That is the reason for government in this world, friends, justice. I mean, that doesn't exclude economic justice or educational justice or health justice, but it's justice. I really, am, and it's, I think, a fairly private view that will go beyond the Bible, but I don't think the government's job is economics, health or education. I think the government's job is justice. It should interfere with those matters in as much as it's not just the way in which education is distributed in the land. But it doesn't seem to me that education is the responsibility of the government. It seems to me that's parents' responsibility. Now, health is everybody's responsibility to look after their own health. I don't think it's the government's job to look after our health or it's the government's job to look after our economics, which you'll be relieved to know seeing they do such a lousy job of it. I don't think that, that distributing things justly to make sure that people have a fair go, justice, yes, that's a very important aspect of government. And that's God's aim. And it's sad to see our Australian governments, state and federal and local community governments, so committed to corruption and everything else but justice. The one primary function they seem to be very poor in. All the other things they keep putting their fingers in. But if we do right, friends, as citizens, we've nothing to fear. If we submit to their requirements, if we drive on the road the way they tell us to drive on the road and and register our cars and pay our taxes and fill in our census forms and educate our children according to the standards that they require, if we do right, we've got nothing to fear of any government. If you do wrong, if you steal, you cheat, you ignore the road rules, then you've got, you'll get what you deserve because God has established governments to do his work of bringing justice into the world. A distorted justice because they're sinful people, a perverted justice because they're corrupt in their administration of justice, but that's what they're there for, and even bad governments do it to some extent. That's what they're there for, and the alternative of anarchy is, of course, always unjust. Anarchy always means the strongest wins, and there is no justice. Bad government is better than no government. And so, to bring about God's will for our good, which may include suffering, may include suffering unjustly like our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God has established government. And therefore, Christians, in verse 5, you'll notice, are to submit to authority not only to avoid punishment, but also to follow conscience. That is, it's not a matter of cowardice that I obey the policeman, it's a matter of conscience that I obey the policeman. Because I honour God who appointed him as my policeman. And therefore, I am not, remember the end of chapter 12, to return evil for evil. I'm not to take revenge, but I'm to overcome evil with good. That's how I'm to win the day, to overcome evil with good. There was a classic time in the Vietnam uh, um, civil disobedience, a classic time when at Washington, outside the White House, if I remember correctly, as the soldiers stood there on guard, the demonstrators came forward and put flowers in the ends of their rifles and submachine guns. And so there they stood there with all their aggression that can be seen from the uniform and the gun and the shields and the helmets and the rest of it with little daisies hanging out the end of their rifles. It was a marvellous symbolic action of submission to a government that was calling upon it at the same time to change their policies. It wasn't a revolution. No one was shot, no soldiers were bludgeoned to death or anything like that, no president was taken out and hung up and drawn and quartered. 
but policy was changed. It's a very Christian way. I'm not saying they were doing it out of Christian motivation, but a very Christian way of doing it. Submission doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go along with the government and obey everything that they say, but it means that you will even register your protest in a way where good is overcoming evil. Well, you're not repaying evil for evil, but evil with good. Our resistance will therefore be a passive resistance rather than an active. I mean, it will be active in that it will be active in showing up evil by kindness and generosity. It requires a little bit more thinking, doesn't it? I mean, the easy way, the knee-jerk reaction is to hit them back. That's the simple way. It requires no brains, just a lot of brawn. That's the simple way. That's the pagan way. Now, you've got to be careful about Romans 13, 1 to 7, that you don't over or understate it. You've got to be careful that you don't understate it because you're worried about immoral governments and so you take away the, what, the, what the passage is saying. It is saying that we are to submit to governments. But you've got to be careful not to overstate it and think that it's actually addressing every situation. It's not addressing any situation, actually. It's addressing the general principle that the knee-jerk reaction to revolution and violence is not the Christian way. The Christian knee-jerk reaction is to submission because we understand the importance of God's sovereignty and we are willing to be punished unjustly, to suffer for righteousness' sake. And therefore, we are willing to accept that we don't know how to run the government any better than the government does, which is one thing a revolutionary never has. Revolutionaries always think they know better. And the track record of people who have won government by revolution is by and large that they know no better than the people they kicked out. They do not know how to solve humans' problems and that they're Christians won't make it necessarily any better because there is no solution to the human problems in this world except the gospel, not government. And that's why, verse 6, you pay taxes. Not just taxes to good governments doing good things, and withholding taxes from governments whose policies you don't like or think are unjust, we pay taxes for conscience sake. You see, God's servants are working full-time in governing for our needs. Building roads, teaching in schools, building hospitals, and as well as the parliamentarians, all government services that we just take for granted. And therefore we should be giving taxes for people who are doing such things for us. We should be paying for them. If you're a public servant, you'll want to be paid properly. Therefore, if you're a member of the public, you should want to pay your servants properly. To withhold taxes, to want to be mean with your taxes, is actually a sign of ungodliness, a lack of generosity. Do as to unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. What would you like if you were a public servant? Well, when you come to fill out your taxes, you do for them as you would want them to do for you, to pay properly. And so we are to be quiet, respectful, law-abiding citizens who stand and bow and honour and pay because God has appointed our life in this world. This topic opens up for us a can of worms, doesn't it? I mean, we can now have long discussions on tax avoidance, military service, what you do when there's a civil war, corrupt government, evangelising against the law, what do you do in countries where you're not allowed to baptise people, should Christians be involved in Bible smuggling? I mean, the agenda is opened up, isn't it? And in one sense, Romans 13 doesn't answer any of those questions. In another sense, it raises the principle that gives rise to all those issues that we, and many others that we would need to discuss together.
We've got to look at the principle here though. The people, we are the people of the King of Kings and we've got to have confidence in him and his appointments for us. We do not follow, the, we're not conformed to the knee-jerk reaction of the world who knows no power above the king and who knows no power except for muscles and who are concerned for no rights other than their own. Well, we'd still have to discuss each situation to know how to best react and respond and I guess some of us would disagree in different ones. But let's turn to the next issue of taxes, that is debts. For he says in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding. Owe no one anything but love. No debts. Now I personally don't think that this is referring to institutional borrowings and bank loans and shares and companies and things like that. Rather the personal borrowings or to borrowing from your tradesmen, not paying your bills. However, some Christians do believe that it refers to all forms of borrowing and I'm certainly not going to say they're wrong. I have a friend who saved up her money completely and purchased her house with cash. It can be done. I know the lady who's done it and she did it because of chapter 13 verse 8. And do you not believe that God would bless her for her concern to be obedient to God's word even if she got it wrong? You've got to accept her, that she be blessed for her concern for conscience. And I'm not going to say she has got it wrong. I personally don't agree because I think the context is about loving your neighbour rather than an engagement with a banking society or something like that. However, I do need to warn you about the borrowing trap that people are getting themselves into. The debt trap is a major problem in our community as a whole and for individuals it is very destructive. Beware of getting yourself deep in debt. We must pay for our way and very often it is better to do without and save up than to constantly see ourselves in debt to other people. We should be debt free as much as we are able to be. But there is one debt that we've always got to retain and we must never pay it off, basically because we can never pay it off. That is the debt to love. That is always there. That is ongoing commitment to each other. It's never to be paid in full. It's never cancelled. And Christians mustn't grow tired of their daily, weekly, monthly, minute by minute payments of this debt. This love debt, he says, fulfills the law. I mean, so much of the book of Romans could be seen as anti-law and therefore immoral and amoral, but a renewed mind will lead to submission. A renewed mind will lead to love. And love is not opposed to the law. Love submits to the law. In fact, if you love your neighbour, you will do what the law says to do. It's not in any way in opposition to the law. Let me read to you 2 John. You write it down, I'll read it, because by the time we've both found it, it'll never get there. 2 John 6. 2 John 6. Don't ask me which chapter. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. This is love? Obey the commands. And what is the command? Well, the command is to love. Of course it runs around in circles. You cannot love your neighbour and commit adultery with his wife. You cannot love your neighbour and murder him at the same time. You cannot love your neighbour and want his goods, coveting his, his possessions. You cannot obey the commandments without loving and you cannot love without obeying the commandments. They run together, friends. 
They're the same thing. Some people have been saying, well, look, forget the law, all you've got to do is love. But without the law, I'm not quite sure you'd always understand what love means. It is the principle of the law is to love. And the law spells out the principle in concrete situations and circumstances. Adultery, murder, coveting is never loving. And of course you see the terrible irony in that with the one on adultery. Because most people think in committing adultery that they are falling in love, that they are making love, but they are not loving. I've been reading in this last week or two uh, a good summer read for you. It's, it's a book by Paul Johnson, an English uh, Roman Catholic, if I remember correctly, called The Intellectuals. It's a book that I've wanted to write for many years, and I'm now enormously relieved that I don't have to, especially as he's done a better job than I possibly could have. In which he recounts each chapter as a, a biography of another great famous intellectual, all of them in their own way atheists and all of them telling you what their life was really like. Uh, Rousseau, Shelley, Tolstoy, Hemingway, Marx, Ibsen, Breck, Russell, Sartre, and there's a couple others I haven't read yet. I'm still in the process of reading it. And it is fascinating as he seeks to make the point, and I think does so fairly convincingly and persuasively, but then I believe the book before I read it, that in their rejection of God, they do it differently. Tolstoy's very God-centered rejection of God, he just, but it's still a rejection of God as you read him. In their rejection of God, they all become totally self-centered. They all become unloving. They all become users of other people. And where the world is following them and adoring them and actually making pilgrimages to their graves, in fact, they were the most revolting group of people you've ever met in your life. In fact, you could be very thankful to God that you didn't meet them because they were great users and manipulators of other people. Nearly every one of them was in debt to people and refused to pay their debts. They went through life borrowing money from other people all the time, living off other people, but never seeing that they had a responsibility to repay their debts. All of them were rebellious against the authority of the, of the land and of God, of course, of their parents usually, and of any authority that came near them. All of them gave themselves to the activities of the night, to drunken orgies, to debauchery and to jealousy their marital infidelities, the slavery with which they reduced their womenfolk is absolutely appalling. Several of them dropped their babies off and had nothing to do with them. Rousseau being, of course, the classic one who had five children and left all five of them in an orphanage without even giving them so much as a name. Orphanages which at that time rarely saw their children live beyond the ages of two. He effectively murdered his children. He, of course, is the father of modern educational theories. He just couldn't stand children. They all wrote well of their love of mankind, but they were all absolute pigs when it came to do with anybody else. Because that is the nature of atheism, friends. If God is not God, I am God. And if I am God, woe betide anybody who has to live anywhere near me. It's a dreadful state of life, you see. With a renewed mind comes a better sense of timing, of knowing, of understanding that the day of judgment is coming. Do you notice daylight saving over the weekend? It's always funny in church, isn't it? Because we're the one community who have got a fixed appointment on the first day of daylight saving. And around about half past ten, when the service is just about an hour over, in come the people who have forgotten. 
and wonder why the sermon is kind of coming to its end just when they were expecting the hymn to start. One of my friends this year missed his plane for an overseas trip, uh, sleeping in. Didn't turn his clock on for daylight saving. It's a terrible blunder, isn't it? Why am I laughing? Uh, basically, I'm laughing because I can see myself doing it. Can't you see yourself doing it sometime? It's just so easy to do that. It's such a human foible, isn't it? To not understand the, the time of the night. To not understand that dawn is coming. Because we keep our eyes shut and we don't see the beginning of the light of the new day and so we just assume it's still night time. There is a life. There is a life of night in this world, isn't there? A night life of sleep in verse 11, but a night life also of darkness, which you see recounted for us there. For what people do in the dark is really what they're ashamed to do in the light. Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy. I tell you, that's just a description of this book, The Intellectuals. That's exactly it. They were filled with jealousy with each other. Hateful, spiteful people always attacking each other with, with vitriol. It's unbelievable for people who are writing books on how to love their neighbours. But that's the character of their lives. Orgies and drunkenness. I mean, Hemingway is just always drunk. In the end, he just pickled himself to death. That's how he lived. That's how he died. Sartre gave Camus a black eye in a drunken rage. It just goes on and on and on in the character of life of the night. Here is the world that we're not to be conformed to. This is not loving one another. This is not fulfilling the law. This is using people and being used. This is hating. This is self-centered animalistic behavior. But we know the day is coming if you're in Christ Jesus. You know, verse 12, that it's almost here. The first rays of dawn have already, been, have already broken out and they are the rays of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that there is a resurrection day coming. It's, it's very close and so we're to put aside the deeds of darkness and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be decent in our behaviour and wakeful. We're to be loving and submissive and debt free except the debt for love. Well, you and I know how to behave now. The end of session. You say goodbye to your friends and you go to a couple of parties and then you put your head down to study day in, day out in fear of the examination that is about to loom upon you. Planning and plotting the summer holidays uh, en route. We know how to behave because we know the time, don't we? What is the time? In Christ, the time is come for judgment. And we who have got a renewed mind that will transform us must not be conformed to the world that is going to come under God's judgment, but conformed by the mercies of God as the people of forgiveness who live in the constant death of love for one another. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for this year that we've had together in studying your word and for the things that you have taught us. We do pray, Father, we might not be just doers of, not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word, that we might really put it into application. Help us, Father, to live by your mercies, not like this world, but transformed into a new way, submissive, generous, loving, in all that we do, help us, Father, to put off the works of darkness and to put on the works of the day, 
as we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for our summer, that you would help us to use our time wisely and righteously. We pray for our examination periods coming up, that you give us calm and collect us so that we might be able to think clearly and present our work fairly. We pray for our examiners that they might act justly and righteously. We pray that the whole system would be free from corruption, that fairness and equity be delivered to all. And we pray that you would use these examinations to guide us in the life of the lies ahead of us. And so we pray for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.